Hello, Virginia Heffernan here. What you're about to hear is a teaser for today's episode of Trumpcast, which is available in full for Slate Plus members only. See how tempted you are now to sign up for Slate Plus? We've made one in four episodes exclusive to Slate Plus members because they help support the work we do on Trumpcast and help fund other Slate podcasts like Slow Burn. To sign up and hear this episode and every episode of Trumpcast in full, please visit slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. It's only $35 for the first year, and you'll get other benefits like ad-free podcasts and discounted tickets to live Slate events. So sign up now at slate.com slash Trumpcast plus, and thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. We are gearing up for the last and final debate between incumbent President Donald Trump and challenger, former Vice President Joe Biden. And this is bound to be a scintillating matchup. The two statesmen are expected to discuss critical race theory and its relationship with the positivist Christian doctrine that animated the civil rights movement which is more effective, India's extraordinary progress in clean energy, and whether that might be a model for decarbonization in America. Of course, they're going to have to touch on responsible data governance in the United States. And finally, the topic on everybody's lips, Indonesia at a crossroads. By the way, I always choose Indonesia at a crossroads because it's always the cover of foreign affairs on The Simpsons. Anyway, it's no doubt going to be an erudite, dignified, frank and friendly exchange of views. Oh, who am I kidding? The debate tonight, one person is going to say, oh, hello, I look like a president and a regular old person. And the other one is going to say, goobble, gobble, eep, orp. And then it will be over. My guest today is Carlos Lozada. He is the nonfiction book critic for The Washington Post, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and the author of What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. Of course, Carlos and I are going to be talking about Indonesia at a crossroads. Carlos, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. I'm sure I'm not the first to say this, but you read 150 plus books about Donald Trump, so we don't have to. But you can if you want to. You can if you want to. <laughs> Everyone says, so you don't have to, but yeah. you, you know, you're know, you totally free to do it. Well, also, some of them are worth reading. So rather than slag off the bad ones, why don't we start by talking about the good ones? And I, I, sh- I should admit, I've read a lot of these too, nowhere near 150, and there were some I hadn't even heard of. But <laughs> maybe we can start with, can any one of these people, and we're talking Omarosa, Michael Wolf, uh, John Kelly, James Comey, can any one of them write? Well, there's like different categories, right? And you, you, you kind of have to grade on a curve, right? There's some books where you're not really in it for like the beautiful writing. Mm-hmm. But the surprisingly good writers, uh, for instance, uh, where, where you really don't expect it among, say, the insider books is, I would say, Cliff Sims. Cliff Sims was sort of like a mid-level communications guy in the Trump White House and uh, wrote this book called Team of Vipers, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's not good like... title. Good it's title. A, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a good... It's a, you know, I guess it's a play-up team of rivals, rivals, vipers, I don't know. But yeah. that's a book that, again, I'm not saying it's sort of like high literature, but it is, it is entertaining. It, it, it is long, but it reads quick. 
And he has a good eye for scenes. I mean, one of my favorite moments in that book takes us back to the very, very beginning of the Trump presidency, literally that first weekend when Mm -hmm. Sean Spicer is sent out to litigate the crowd size, right? Trump's inauguration versus Obama's inauguration. The vast crowd size at the the biggest inauguration, period. Period, period. Yes. He added period, Spicer added period to a lot of things. But Cliff Sims takes you behind the scenes of that moment. And essentially, he's at the keyboard when all these aides are like huddled trying to come up with Spicer's talking points. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're pulling data, they're pulling information out of nowhere, and they they fully admit it. Um, And yet suddenly, like just when they've kind of got their stuff together, um, the computer crashes and they lose everything. Right. And and Cliff Sims didn't know if, you know, like, is this like an automatic shutdown thing? Like what's going on? Um, and, you know, and they're able to cobble it back together and send Spicer out. Um, but that scene just made me think that like the the ghosts of press secretaries past were like intervening and trying to get them to stop doing something so transcendentally dumb on that first weekend <laughs> where where they ended up losing so much credibility like right off the bat. Yes, this is the rare short circuiting. Doesn't Sim say he it'd been a long time since he'd used a PC rather than a Mac. So this is the PCs <laughs> it's it's an old poison pill from Bill Gates about lie overload. When you're it, the circuits get shorted in your PC if you uh if you lie too much. <laughs> yeah, that that I liked. You know, like like that was yeah. just a good scene. It was something we thought we all knew, you know, what had happened, but it's just a nice behind the scenes moment, you know, and also just the ways in which Steve Bannon, you know, came off as this big sage, you know, thinker and you know, rabble rouser. But all he seems to say to everyone is like, hey, let's just break shit, you know, let's just yeah. let's just like mess things up, you know, and you never get a sense of him actually sort of like being a big strategic thinker as opposed to kind of playing a big strategic thinker. And so that's, for instance, why I liked Team of Vipers. You know, that was a book that I I didn't read at the time. I there A lot of these books I read throughout the Trump presidency in my ongoing role as a book critic for the Washington Post, but many others I went back when I was working on the book to kind of backfill and, you know, I wanted to get more about specific subjects. And that's when I read Team of Vipers and I enjoyed it. It was just a good read. Yeah, I love some of the passages. I mean, love may be too strong. I like some of the passages you quote from the Mm -hmm. Sims book. um, And especially, it's very hard to make writing and editing have any drama to it. And somehow he's (laughs) able to bring you to this point where the PC crashes and he frantically hits the space bar. I mean, but also that all comes down to the moments of people like Sims um, who were called on and virtually everyone who writes, writes these books who were called on to smooth over, have been called on to smooth over and make sense of Trump's exaggerations and, you know, moral rotten moral character (laughs) so you know that's it's just exactly right you're just manically typing and trying to frantically hit the space bar in order to preserve a justification of trump's hyperbole that can't be justified i mean it's just there's something very interesting in the mania that you described there so thanks for that tip yeah that's also very consistent with trump even pre-presidency right some of these books describe for instance trump during the apprentice. And mm-hmm. it turns out that Trump would often choose winners on the show in a way that had no bearing on how they'd actually 
you know, done the tasks or, or sort of, you know, like how they shown themselves to be, to be worthy or not on the show. And so the producers and editors had to then go back and basically re-edit the show to make Trump's ultimate decision make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think that's, that's, you know, and you, you see that that's described in books like James Poniewozik's book, Audience of One, who's the New York Times TV critic, but you see it's, it's entirely consistent, right? It's, it's, it's very much how he has kind of used the federal government, you know, like after the fact, I want X outcome. And so let's sort of massage data. Let's get other information out there to make it seem like that is the correct outcome. Yeah. And it's only a coincidence that I'm I'm holding a Sharpie right now, which I just have here uh, just for <laughs> emphasis. And, you know, that's 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 the ultimate example. Right. Like, let's like redraw the map of the hurricane, you know, with with a Sharpie after the fact to to make my my off the cuff impulses seem correct afterward. You know, I think the first very first time I was on this show as a guest, I talked to Jay. I was guest. So I talked to Jacob Weisberg because. I was in James Ponowozik's role when The Apprentice was on the air, and I had seen every episode. And it was kind of, it's kind of hard oh to get God. your hands on the episode. So I was sort of in you, like I had seen it, so nobody else had to. And I have a favorite season. And But one of the things that was really interesting in those final You're Fired scenes was it's true that the producers had tried a little bit to bring together his completely capricious decisions about who should win and lose. He he hadn't been following who who was the good project leader, who did what on each project. But they also kind of gave in to his impulsiveness as an interesting drama. So uh, I think I said then and I still I still believe that I don't know, maybe it's the untouchables, but a mafia Don walking around a table with a baseball bat and you don't know whose head he's going to smash in, you know, or that, you know, that thing where he's like, haven't I done right by everyone here? Has everyone, you know, and you know that he's on to the rat, uh, but he's like talking sweetly and then he just bashes somebody's head in who you don't expect. So the other thing is that the producers, as, as, the, as time went on on The Apprentice, also realized that his complete, you know, yeah, impulsivity was interesting drama, was like anybody mm. could die now. And, you know, he's talking about firing Christopher Ray right. or um, DeSantis, you know, so like someone could be completely loyal and he's still deciding, yeah, that he can sack them at any opportunity. So anyway, who of these writers is pro-Trump? Oh, I mean, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of, of I mean, I, I wanted in this book to range as widely as I could. It would be a very boring book if I'm just writing about writers who are against Trump or who yeah. are in the tank for Trump. And it wouldn't be as useful, I think, to anyone. So, I mean, there is a sort of canon of sycophantic writers, but there are sort of two kinds of, okay. of those writers. Some are just the... Uh, you know, you have books by by Corey Lewandowski and and and... Uh, Janine Pirro and and Newt Gingrich has written four Trump books in four years. I mean, that is some dedication. He's, just, he's, he's um, Charles Dickens of our time. And and, um, <laughs> and I, I have to pause there. And um, and but then you also have you know, and those are just books that really that often you know mimic Trump's tones and that try to sort of not see in him what is what is there try to sort of explain everything away 
Then you have books that are sort of the pro-Trump intellectuals, mm. uh, Victor Davis oh, Hanson, yeah. Michael Anton. Um, and I mean, intellectuals is an elastic term. There's there's all sorts of kind of levels of, of, of thinking going on. But uh, yeah, what did you make of those? Because, you know, yeah, they, you know, um, Rich Lowry, uh, who was mm -hmm. the, who, you know, who as editor of National Review oversaw the against Trump, the, the big against Trump issue they did before the election, uh, mm -hmm. but sort of got religion afterwards. Yep. And, and those books, uh, my, my, my main conclusion with those is that they want to retrofit some kind of ideology onto Trump after the fact. They want mm -hmm. to, to say that there is something coherent and noble that is called, called Trumpism as opposed to just something impulsive, you know, called Trump. And mm -hmm. so they create these, uh, whether it's, you know, a new conservative nationalism theories that purport to explain what Trump is really all about. But mm. more often than not, they just end up like they, they claim to love Trump for his beliefs and his principles, but they really are with him for his enemies. Right. They 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 mm. share mm -hmm. common enemies. That was our preview. Aren't you compelled to hear more? You can just sign up for Slate Plus at Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to listen to the full episode and get all our podcasts without ads. That's Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus.